I think uh, something I want to, I felt impressed in the first service, and I plan to do it next week. I I don't like to break from a series, but I'm going to do a message on uh, explaining what's going on in our culture and what we plan to do about it biblically and what we are to do about it. And uh, I saw two articles this morning, a bunch of same-sex marriages was one. The other, we're on the verge of legalizing marijuana. Uh, This is going through the states big time. And uh, sometimes I think, uh, even in my own heart, I'm saddened and want to panic. But this is the very culture that the church was planted. Uh, This is the environment. Uh, I don't think the church was upset because Nero voted in something new. And I'll look, I know some of you still think we're a Christian country, but you've got to be asleep. You've got to be asleep. Uh, we are not. And God is quickly giving us up as a culture so we could be destroyed any time. Uh, and so I'm going to just look at a biblical look at marriage, uh, a biblical look at homosexuality, a biblical look on what we should be doing as the church about it. And... Uh, uh, I don't think we ought to become homophobic. I think we ought to become evangelistic. I think we, we've got good news. I don't tell, I don't panic because there's a bunch of men that are womanizers. Well, that's normal. You know, men will do that. I, I guess I don't mind them doing it there, just as long as they're not doing it here. And what's really scary about our times is what's going on in the name of the church. If you read the papers and see the rabbis, and the pastors that are doing these ceremonies. So what are you going to teach your children? What are you going to say? Or will you just be shocked? Or will you raise your voice to teach another generation? So we'll look at that next week. Uh, Bring all your uh, friends that want an uplift, and uh, let's look at it. Uh, I wouldn't care if you brought your homosexual friends. I won't say anything against them, per se. We'll try to evangelize them. You won't compromise the Word of God to love a sinner. You won't compromise the Word of God. But let's don't compromise the Word of God. Let's keep saying what God says, okay? All right, turn to John 14. John 14. Christ has announced to his uh, men that he's going away. He already said, Judas, you're going to betray me. Go do what you're going to do quickly. And so he leaves the upper room. Uh, Peter, in his pledge of loyalty, Christ bursts the bubble and says, no, you won't. You won't be faithful to me. Uh, Contrary to your uh, greatest vow and the biggest emotional rush of, I will be with you, uh, you won't. You will deny me. Had to be an utter shock to him and the disciples. I don't think he ever... Uh, dreamed he would ever be capable of doing that. And uh, then Christ goes on to say, by the way, I'm going to go away. I'm going to become invisible. And I'm not going to let my church see me for the next 2,000 years. They didn't hear that, but that's what it's been. Uh, And so they're in a panic. Where will you be? How will we get in touch with you? Uh, uh, Has this whole thing died? And so in light of this, he tells them, uh, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I am the way to that city. 
I'm going to go to the cross and prepare that way. And then he continues saying these wonderful truths. And we pick up verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Christ is assuming you men already know the Father. You already know him. You're thoroughly acquainted. Watch. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And probably what he's saying is, do a theophany. Uh, God, show up in the bush, uh, the cloud. Uh, manifest. We need a manifestation. Uh, reveal yourself. I'm in the dark. When have we ever seen God the Father? We have not seen him. Jesus is saying, you have. Philip's saying, no, I haven't. Who's right? Now watch. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? And in a way you say, yeah, you I have been with you, and I still don't get it. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me is continually believing. The works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, I don't know that I want to preach as much as I want to explain to you the, the profundity of the passage. I was going to skip verses 7 through 11 because I wanted to jump to the prayer section. Everybody wants to know about prayer. Nobody understands 7 through 11. Why waste our time? Well, maybe we should waste our time if we don't understand it. We expected them to get it, and we're still trying to figure it out. What did he say here? And so there'll be three things I want us to look at. The Father is perfectly revealed in the Son. The Father is perfectly represented in the Son. And that's what he's saying, 7 through 11. The Father is perfectly put on display through his Son. Second, Christ wants these men to know, I want to be on display through you. I'm going to turn over the greater works that need to be done, not to a visible Christ, but to an invisible Christ, and I want you to perfectly represent and reveal me in the world when I'm gone. 
Thirdly, just because I become invisible does not mean I will stop working. I will be actively involved working on behalf of what happens on the earth in the throne room of God. I'm going to the Father, and I will send you everything you need to do the work I'm leaving in your hands. Let's first of all look. The Father is perfectly revealed in the Son. And what he says to in this passage is, the Father's words, the Father's works, and the Father's will has been perfectly done in the Son. And he's going to go to the cross as the Father has designed it. Uh, every word that Christ taught, he said, the words that I've used are not my own. They come from the Father. The works I've done, why, they've been the works of the Father. I have come to do thy will, O God, as it is written of me in the volume of the book. I've done your will. I've never moved on my own initiative. I've never done a single thing in my whole life that ever was not your will to be done. I have perfectly represented you. Perfect representation. So what do we have? We have the invisible God that no man has ever seen. John 1, 18. No man has ever seen. What do you do with a verse like this? No man has ever seen God before. Is that true? How many say it's true? How many are guessing? I thought we said Jesus was God. But some of you just said we've never seen God before. What? You got to know which member of the Godhead he's talking about. No one has ever seen God the Father, ever. And according to John 1.18, the Son has come to explain him, to bring him out in full revelation. So I am the Word, which means I am the spokesman, the revealer of what God the Father is like. And I'll give a perfect representation of what the invisible God that no one's ever seen. Let me bring out into public uh, uh, preview. This is what the Father's like. And I have been the perfect representation. So you see a dynamic here. An invisible God wants a visible representative. You follow me? The invisible God wants to be perfectly represented in word, deed, and his will. Not the son's will versus the father's will. Now, besides this, Christ says there is an interpenetration. I, I'm, I'm begging for terms. How do I, it's, that's the only term I could. There is an interpenetration between the Father and the Son, so that you don't know, you can't distinguish, are these the Father's words or the Son's words? Which ones are they? They're both. From the Father, perfectly represented in the Son, the words of God are not the Father's words, the Son's words, they're our words. When does the Father begin and stop in the ministry of Christ? And where 
does Christ pick up and he leaves off? Nowhere, it seems. Nowhere. Now, the son, here's an amazing thing. He volunteers to never do anything independent of the father. So he's dependent on the father for his whole earthly ministry and the ministry of the spirit to get him through. He, he does some miracles to show that he's deity, he's capable of it, but he's in submission. He didn't come to do his own thing. He came to do the Father's thing. We are inseparable in purpose, in words, and works. Look at it. Verse uh, 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father? And you don't know what that means, do you? Run up here and tell us what it means. I just call it interpenetration, and you're still saying that's a nice word. What is it? I don't know. It's the best I can do. Do you do better? You have to do it. And the Father is in me. I'm in him. We share the same nature, the same agenda, the same words, the same works. The words that I say... They're not from my, me. They're the Father. And where is the Father? Abiding in me. That's what he says. He's abiding in him. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. If you don't get it, look at the works. The works say, God's working with me. God's working through me. And when you've seen me do a work, you've seen the Father do a work. When you see me say a word, the Father said a word. For I am the perfect representation of the invisible God that you've never seen before. Now, he's going to take that and he's going to transfer it to his people. And he's going to say to them, I am going to be in you like the Father was in me. Look at verse 20. In that day, I think it's the day of Pentecost, when the church was immersed in the spirit, and the body of Christ began. In that day you will know that I am in my Father. Interesting. I don't think you're going to get it in this upper room, but in that day you'll find out how inseparable the members of the Godhead are. At that day. There's a future day you're going to get it. You're going to understand it. And there's something else I want you to get on that day. You will find out you are in me. Do you see that? And he'll explain it in John 15 as the branch is in the vine. As a member of the body is joined to the head. You will be immersed into me and you will be a member of Christ's body and I will be in you. Now, now explain that, okay? I'm in the Son 115 times it's said in the New Testament, you are in Jesus. And it says that he is in you. Christ in you is the hope of glory. He is in the believer. I'm in Christ. Galatians says, you're so in Christ that when God looks on you, he doesn't even see gender, ethnicity, or social status, he sees you clothed in his son, and he treats you just like he treats the son. 
That's why it says in Ephesians, we have all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ. Everything God wants to give a person, he's given it to us in Jesus. So Piper's great line is that uh, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied with all he's done for us in Jesus. If Jesus doesn't satisfy you, God doesn't satisfy you. He's in you. You're in him. But when I got saved, I didn't start feeling like I, was, I felt a rib cage around me or another person around me. No, some mystical way, a union was formed the moment I became a believer. The Spirit immersed me into Christ, and I've been in him for all these years, just like you. And he moved in that very moment. Christ came into you. Now, what he's saying I'm going to leave the work that I've been doing to you, my church, my disciples. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who is continually believing the works that I do, he will do also. That's a big order. But you're going to be doing the work I want you to do. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Not because you're greater than your master, but because I will go to the Father and I will be working up there and you'll be working down here. So it's going to be a partnership that's going to be formed. I'm going to be in you. You're going to be in me. And here's the amazing thing. As I represented the invisible Father, I'm going to entrust you to represent me. I want you to do my works. I want you to proclaim my word. And I want you to do my will. And you are going to be my visible external rep representatives. You will reveal what I'm like. You will represent the head. You're the body. He's the head. He'll be up there, as it were, in the clouds. You'll be here on the earth. And I want you to represent me. Now, I'm turning over to you works and greater works. But let me tell you what. I'm going to take you men. I'm going to start a church. And I'm going to be working for you at my Father's right hand. But I'm going to do greater things to you than I ever did in my own ministry. Now, it can't be greater than raising dead people. It can't be greater than feeding the multitudes. His miracles could not be surpassed. What does he mean by greater works? Well, uh, it's really fun when you go on the, the journey and all the commentaries. Uh, let me give you what I, the best I found, what they say. Then I'll give you the correct view. Uh, uh, most common view is converts. Converts. Uh, how many people did Jesus lead to himself? Did the 5,000 he fed, did they put faith in him? No, they went away. Jesus couldn't keep a crowd. He could get a crowd, but he couldn't keep it. Do a miracle, feed a bunch of people, you can get a crowd. Doesn't mean you can keep them. John 6, they went away. And he said to the men that were there, he said, will you also go away? Twelve men were standing around. Five thousand he just fed. And they all left. 
And they had 12 men. said, are you going to leave me too? And Peter spoke up. This gives Peter some great credit here. He said, who, who else could we go to, Lord? You're the only one that's got eternal life. Everybody can make bread, but only you give a man eternal life. I'm hanging out with you. So, converts. And what's interesting, he takes the man in the room that will fail the greatest, and he preaches the first sermon of this new era through him, and 3,000 are saved in one day. This does not make any sense. But this is the greater work. I mean, I would have already fired him in the upper room. I know you're going to bail out. You're fired. I'm going to get someone to replace you. No, I'm not going to replace you. I'm going to entrust the greater works to you. You're going to preach for me on the day of Pentecost. That's one I think it's a good view. Another one is the view of geography. Christ spent all of his ministry within 80 miles. 80 miles. He wasn't even a world evangelist. He never made any trips to Africa or Europe. He, his whole ministry was in a matter of probably 40 to 80 miles at the most. And he's going to say, when I take you men... I'm going to take you from Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the earth with a message of who I am, and you're going to represent me not only to the Jews, I'm going to take it to the Gentiles. You shall go to the uttermost parts of the earth. You're going to get outside of Palestine. Matter of fact, by 55 AD, would you believe this gospel is being preached to the Praetorian Guard and preached to the household of Caesar? Within 20 years of the death of Christ, we've already reached the emperor's household by a guy by the name of Paul. I'm going to get it outside of Palestine. You're not really excited because you don't know yet where you're going to land. That's pretty good stuff to do that. Then, uh, it, you're going to have a greater message than what I had. I'm proclaiming I am Messiah. I'm claiming believe on me. But you're going to be on the other side of my cross work and my resurrection and my triumph and my ascension to heaven. You're going to be entrusted with a much greater message. I can't preach. I've died for you. I was buried for you. I rose for you. I'm ascended for you. You will. I'm going to entrust that greater message to you, you men. I'm going to entrust you with my words. I'm going to entrust you with my work. I want you to represent that to the world, all the way as far as you can go. And then I think uh, a fourth view. Is it not a greater work that you could be represented through imperfect people? When Christ was the perfect representative for the Father, it happened straight across without any diminishment, without any uh, distractions. But now the Son is saying, I am going to be represented through you. Uh, uh, and here's his roster. Good old doubting Thomas. You want him to represent you? Yeah. You want the former tax collector, Matthew, representing you? Yep, I'm going to use him. Peter, you, yep, yeah, I'll use him. James and John, they're better at frying people than reaching people. They're the ones that burn up the town, Lord. He said, you don't know what spirit you're of, you sons of thunder. I didn't come to burn up towns. I came to save towns. 
Look at some of you rascal hotheads out here. I can't believe God would stoop to use you. He's got to be desperate. And he is. They had a great prank they did at Dallas Seminary. George Rutenbart tells me about it. That uh, on the uh, uh, kind of the chapel for all the grads just at the school, the guys come out and they're wearing their uh, hood and their gown. And uh, if you're a Hebrew major, you're carrying your Hebrew Bible. If you're a Greek major, you know, it's a big formal thing. And they're getting doctorates and masters. And they come out for this very formal, um, serious moment. And by the time they reach the platform and they get up here to be honored by all the students and faculty, three of the students had arranged a banner that came down at a certain moment when they got on the stage and it came down and it covered them and it simply said, is this the best the grace of God can do? And some men nearly got expelled because George was there for doing the prank. And you know, I look out, I've been around Christians for over 50 years and they're not real impressive. Not many PhDs in this auditorium. How many PhDs do we have represented? Go. I want to be sure to see it. We want to acknowledge you. Some of you are like Irma Bombay. She said, I cry when my kids pass the eye test. I mean, we're not all that impressive, and they're sure not impressive here. I, no church growth expert in all your life are going to pick these 11 losers and bailout artists this night to build a church with. Jesus did. I'm going to entrust the work to you men. And you're going to do greater things in my name than I ever did. But you're going to be doing it not because you're so powerful and great. I'm going to be up there giving you everything you need down here. And by the way, in this chapter, the next section, he's going to say, and because you're such a weak lot, I'm going to send you some help, and you call him the Holy Spirit. Because my church can't make it without some help, because I've got imperfect men representing a perfect God. It's a great question to ask. Does anybody see Jesus in you? Anywhere. By the time I get through taking care of my grandchildren, I think they see more devil sometimes than Jesus. <laughs> Don't do that. Stop that. Pick that. Get out of there. Bless you in Jesus' name. Get over there. And by the time they go home, I got to pray an hour. I said, did they see Jesus? I said, no, they saw a cranky grandpa. Get out of that refrigerator. We fed you three times already. But grandpa, we've been here four days. That's enough. That's enough. Get home. Deborah, get your kids. I'm bitter. And I thought, did they, and I'm preparing this message, did they see Jesus? And, and I'm quite frankly in the middle of it. I think, Jesus, I'm not trying to represent you right now. And he said, I know you're not. And see, that's why the Spirit's filling ministry, until he's filling and controlling you, you won't represent him. You're going to represent crankiness, irritability, contention, strife, hate, lust. you got the fleshly agenda. Who's in charge of you? You imperfect people, you can't make it without the Spirit. 
All we get is you, and you're a big, flat flop, and you are an imperfect ref of a perfect Savior. The world is looking at the church. They can't see Christ. He's out of sight. He's invisible these 2,000 years. Now, the third thing he said, let me give you the guarantee of what I'll be doing while I'm invisible. Verse 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. He says this several more times in the upper room. These are unconditional promises. What in the world do they mean? Number one, whatever we ask in his name. Now, does this mean... uh, uh, Jesus, give me this, give me that. Uh, bless my 401k. Uh, I let my mother-in-law get sick so she won't come to the house. Uh, in Jesus' name. Now, did God hear that? See, you used a little rabbit's foot you tacked on the end of a prayer. In Jesus' name. Now, that's just a title. Scripture, the name of God, stood for all that God was. The name of God. That's why you don't take the name of God in vain. It stands for his character, uh, for his integrity, who he is. And Jesus said, I'll be up there. And when you come up with any request at the bank of heaven, you need two signatures. Mine and yours. And if you come and ask for anything you need to do the work I'm commissioning you to do, to represent me in my word, and to do the will of God, I will do it. Because James will tell us, he doesn't give you a help to fulfill your own pleasures or for your own selfish interests. He's interested in his work being done on the earth. Come and ask me in my name for the resources I need to do your work. I'm representing you here on the earth, and I'm asking for your help. Now, he says, you'll never hear me say no. If you're not getting any answers to your prayers, guess what the problem is? You haven't asked anything he can grant. You haven't asked according to his will, maybe. Uh... You, you have it uh, for whatever, whatever it is. If you've got sin in your heart, uh, you know, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. We get silly stuff around here. A couple comes up here, they're living together, and they say, pray, pray my woman won't leave me. I say, no, I'm praying she will. <laughs> well, yeah, but we're so tight. Yeah, we know you are, but you're in sin. God's not going to hear what you're asking. You mean you've got to be right on sin to get a prayer answered? Yeah. And some of you said, well, I'd just soon have a poor prayer life and stay in my sin. You can have it. Keep your sin, but you can't get divine help. You might ask God to help you get out of sin. Now, he'll help you do that. Well, you know, I'm kind of in love with it. Oh, okay. Just, just stay out there and wallow. Stay there. You can't get divine help I had a man, when I went to Mary Carolyn, he gave me a great line. He said, if you want Bible blessing, 
you've got to stand on Bible ground. If you don't want to do the will of God, don't ask for his help. If you don't want to do the work of God, don't ask for his help. If you don't want to love the word of God and obey it, don't ask God for his help. Go ask Baal. Go ask Sin. Go ask Playboy. But don't ask God. God wants to get his work on this earth. He's not in love with your work. He's in love with his work. He's in love with his word, not your word. He's in love with his plan, his will, not yours. And until he can get you where you want to do his will, his word, his way, you can't have his help. He wants you to represent him. He wants you to represent him. Is God represented in this church is the issue. So he says, I give you a promise. I'll grant whatever you ask me. There's only three conditions. You've got to be believing me. Verse 12, whoever's continually believing me, whoever asks in my name, number two, and number three, whoever's asking for what will bring glory to God. There's the three conditions. I'm believing him. By the way, prayer without faith is a waste of time. God does not answer unbelieving prayer. He that is double-minded is unstable in all of his ways. He's tossed to and fro by the wind and the wave. You must be certain. Our old daddy said one time to me, he said, you know why Daniel prayed 21 days? I said, no, dad, who knows that? He said, well, he prayed 21 days because he didn't get his answer in 20. I said, well, I've never asked for anything. I want it that bad. After two days, I give up. He said, because you don't believe it. And then he told me about a time in his life in Fryant, California, where he fasted two days a week. And he have to eat because he's working on a dam. And he did that for a month. Two days fast, a day he'd have to eat, fast and pray for whatever this was. And then two days fast and pray, eat, because he's working in 110 degree weather. He had to have his strength. Two days fast and pray, boom. And then he'd look at us. He told us, kids, he, and he would just say this, and I got my answer. And it's been good for over 45 years. I got what I would not be denied. Do you want anything bad enough from God that you're going to keep knocking, keep seeking, and keep asking? Or is it just a little flight a, a, a little desire, a little Bob Dylan, you think he is going to satisfy your ever-wondering desire. Oh, no, 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 no. When you ask in his name, Lord, we're wanting to make Jesus known to 350 kids at BBS. They need Jesus. We want kids known in our youth group. We want people saved. We don't want people to go to hell. We're trying to make Christ known in the pagan Bay Area. We want to represent you. We need your power. We need your spirit. We need your word. Can you help us? And if he can't, let's sell the building and give it to charity. If he's not big enough to send us help, I'm out of here because I can't keep the church going. I can't keep me going. But let me tell you what this powerful God does. I think God is willing to channel his power through weak men and women I think of, uh, I was just moved uh, about to, I think of two great men in the 1800s, Charles Spurgeon and Dwight L. Moody. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, 
uh, a 19-year-old preacher that left a little village where they had about 90 people in this village church. And for some reason, they called him to London, to Metropolitan. John Gill had been there for years. The church had dwindled down. Gill was a great theologian, but Spurgeon was the theologian evangelist. Went to the slums of London at 19 years of age. Wasn't even married yet. And uh, just be, at the time he was taking that pastorate, he wanted to get a Bible college education. Taking such a prestigious pulpit, though it had dwindled. He went to meet a principal to a Bible college that was in London. And the house servant uh, got mixed up and put Spurgeon at one end of a large house, over here as it were, and put the principal when he came at another end, and she never told either one that the other was there. Never did introduce, whatever. And so the principal stayed for an hour, hour and a half, and just assumed that Spurgeon wasn't going to show up. So the principal left. After a while, Spurgeon came out, asked the lady of the houses, Where's the principal? He said, oh, oh, he left. I, I didn't. Was confused. Spurgeon was dejected. And as he left, he said, Jeremiah swept through his soul. When Jeremiah talked to his secretary, and he said, seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. And so he went out and bought 25,000 volumes and read four volumes a week. When he was 50 years old, was the head of 65 organizations, many orphanages, many preaching stations in town. His wife supported the poor preachers of London and England by sending them books every Monday. He, she became paralyzed after their boys were born. And so his penny library was printed both in the United States and here. 65 organizations when he was only 50 years old. Plus, he preached seven times a week. I will get my work done through the week. And there will be no mistake about who's doing it. It will be me. Dwight Dell Moody, 1,800 shoe salesman. Goes to Chicago to make his fortune. Winds up getting a burden for street kids, ghetto kids because the respectable churches didn't want the riffraff in their churches. So he started a Sunday school in Hell's Kitchen, Chicago, and he paid for a Sunday school teacher. He said, I'll round up the kids, and he'd give them gifts. Every, he knew how to, the salesman and he knew how to get them there. I'll pay you to teach them. Pretty soon he was gathering 1,000 kids every Sunday. But one Sunday, the Sunday school teacher couldn't make it. And rather than to dismiss them, let them go, he got up and began to teach them a Bible lesson. And God saved a bunch of kids. And from that day on, he found out, I want to not only have you pay the bill, I want you to communicate my word. Someone said to him one time, you know what, Moody? You seem to be doing the work of 10 men. He said, oh, you forget, there's two of us working. You know what I like to say? There's four of us working. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and me. 
So can God get anything done with you with that much help? I've got the Son in me. I've got the Spirit in me. I've got the Son in me. Ephesians 4, 6, the Father's in you all. Romans 8, 9, if you don't have the Spirit, you're not God's child. I've got the Spirit, all of him, not a half of him, not three. I've got the whole person. Christ in you, the hope of glory, Colossians 1, 20. I've got all three members living in me. And I'm in them. So that's a six-fold relationship. I'm in the Son, the Son's in me. I'm in the Father, the Father's in me. I'm in the Spirit, the Spirit's in me. Friend, that's enough help for God to do something through you. God could do something. I don't care how weak you are. God has never been impressed with what men call strong. Because the strong men of the age crucified his son. The wise men of the age rejected his son. So he said, I chose the foolish thing so I could get the glory. You know why God chose you? You're weak enough that when the work gets done, we won't make any mistake of knowing who did it. R.W. Dale went to hear Moody when he was in England. And after he met Moody and had an interview, he said, you know what, Mr. Moody? Having seen what's going on and having met you, I see no relationship between what's going on and you. The work is great, and I'm meeting a plain shoe salesman. Guess who was doing the work? From the third heaven. I want to tell you a story. You folks aren't used to these stories because you're homegrown folks. You're all urbanites. I, I grew up around a guy named Thacker, and I used to go to his church in Fresno. He was a kid preacher. He got saved in the hills of Arkansas when he was about 14. His pastor, for some reason, asked him if he'd preach for the church. Just a 14, 15-year-old. No, barely could read. He was just a plowboy. And so Cliff tells me, I said, yeah. Gave his testimony. Wound up preaching every night for six to eight weeks. And God seemed to save everybody within 20 miles of that little country church. But he said one day, he was plowing in the field, in his father's field, and he was plowing and doing these meetings. And a guy was coming down the hill with a, a load of coal. Had a team. He was driving, had this load of coal, and was one of the old timers in the community. And he was coming down that hill. When he got down, he came up right alongside where Cliff was uh, plowing the kid. And he pulled up and put on the brakes. And this old man said to Cliff, says, Cliff, are you aware God's made a preacher out of you? You're a preacher boy. And Cliff said, oh, no, no, no. No, no, you're, you're mistaken. I'm just a plow boy, God saved. I'm just a plow boy, God saved. Son, aren't you aware what's been going on in this community? Every night you preach, another bootlegger saved. Another wife beater saved. We got a 14 to 15 year old untaught kid. Something's going on, boy. God's made a pre- No, sir. No, sir. And right there he said, the Spirit of God arrested him. And said, don't ever say again, 
God hadn't called you to preach. And he said, it was years before denomination laid hands on me. It was years before men laid their hands on him. But he said, there next with a team of mules and a coal wagon filled with coal. He said, right there in that field, God ordained me. I'll work through you, Cliff. You just preach. I'll do the greater works. I'll channel my resources through you. Now I want to ask you this. Do you represent Jesus or do you represent yourself? Don't worry about representing Valley. What's Valley? Valley someday will be a has-been. We'll burn the building of the Antichrist to get it. He can have it. Where I'm going, I won't need it. But do you represent Jesus personally? You know the old line that says the only Jesus some people ever see is in you. Because he, our God, all three members have now chosen to be invisible again. None of them are in view. And the only place they can get any display is through his body. The head is in the heavens. The body is on the earth. And we're supposed to represent him. You'll be my witnesses when the Spirit comes. You'll represent my love. You'll represent my work. You'll represent my words. Oh, I want a body that I can be represented in. And I'll send you all the resources you need if you just give me yourself. If I did it with those 11, I could do it with you. Why don't some of you quit warming a pew and get involved in the work? And don't go sign up enlistment just to get over the guilt. I make the announcement. You won't last a month and you'll be miserable and mad that I talked you into it. Don't, don't. Why did God save you? He wants to get his work done through you. Does he need you? Eh, no. He doesn't. Because you're a big liability that he has to keep supplying his spirit to overcome. Our inferiorities, our weakness. Uh, just some of you got a lousy personality. <laughs> your mate, take, it takes the grace of God for your mate to stand you. So how could God be represented through you? Hadn't smiled in a year. You know what? You got to say, I'm tired of living my words, my way, my work. I want your will, your way, your work. Here I am. Infuse your power. Infuse your power. Aren't you thirsty to do the greater works? Would that God was to do greater works. You know, to me, I... I I have to say, being out at VBS, I want to thank you 170 or so volunteers that helped pull off VBS. Thanks, thanks, thanks. And Carolyn and Andrea and the team. So glad it's over. I'm hoping to get my wife back. Uh, and uh, I was there Thursday night when they kind of draw the net Probably 40 to 50 little lives went in there. How do we know which ones it took, didn't take? 
But I just thought, our teaching staff, the lessons, Marilyn and Grant, and I think of the Nicosia family and other teachers, and the tracks. All we are trying to do is represent Jesus and what he wants to do in a boy or girl's life. It's not our idea to save. It's his idea. We could be content to let them go to hell, just keep my pleasures coming. But that's not why he saved us. He saved us for good works that will show him off. Would you please start advertising someone beside yourself? Start advertising how wonderful Jesus is. I learned a simple little chorus. There's my dad, of course. Let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. I forget all, da, 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 and all of his majesty. Oh, spirit divine, make Jesus sublime. Oh, let, oh, let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. I want to pray for you, and then we're going to close with a heart panting for the living God. Some of you may be here without Christ, and some may be here that you've never surrendered yourself to begin to tap in on this great power. Our Father, the invisible Father we have, and now an invisible Savior, even with a physical body, you've chosen to be invisible for these 2,000 years. We can't wait to see you. It, it's going to be wonderful. And I must say, Jesus, Jesus, I want to handle your feet. I want to touch your hands. I have to say it. I do. I want my hands on you. I, I don't want to just look at you on the throne. I want to be up and touch you. The disciples got to touch you in your resurrected body. And if it's just your feet, that would be okay. I'm not worthy to be on your throne. But you said, you said, I shall reign with you someday. You will reign. You will be heirs and co-heirs. I can't hardly take it in. Just to handle your nail-scarred feet seems too much. But then for you to reserve a seat for me to reign with you, how, how can it be? You're deeper, wider, and greater than my poor mortal tongue can describe. But Jesus, I believe you're in the Father. And I believe he's in you. And I believe I'm in you. And you're you, you in me. And so I'm going to represent you. For whatever days I have left, I want you. I hear Paul say in Philippians 1, I seek that Christ be seen as magnificent in my body. While I live, show Christ to be magnificent. Christ to be magnificent. Father, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, I pray your spirit will take the veil off their eyes and show them Christ. If there's a believer that's grieving the spirit out of your will, not letting you work through them, may your spirit so woo them and embrace them as to melt them to say, 
I can represent the potter. He's a great potter. We pray this for the glory of Christ. Amen.